All right, we're doing it one more time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of So Have You Seen. I am your host, Noel Cruz. As always, I thank you so very much for joining me. We are continuing this week's episode based on the Marvel franchise film, X-Men. So last week's episode, we pretty much uh, touched on the first three films in the X-Men trilogy, uh, which are the films that ran from 2002 through 2006. They were the first X-Men, directed by Brian Singer, X2, X-Men United, also directed by Brian Singer, and then X-Men 3, The Last Stand, which was directed by Brett Ratner. So, based on my review... um. I was a really big fan of this franchise and what was done. It was a really bold take. You know, I, I, I tip my hat to Brian Singer, particularly for the first two films, uh, which I believe he was supposed to do the third. But as I mentioned in the previous episode, ironically, Brian Singer had left. He departed the third X-Men film to do Superman Returns, which was being done by Brett Ratner. And Brett Ratner, who had done the Rush Hour movies, he had left Superman Returns to do X-Men. So they kind of swapped out franchises. Um, the first two X-Men films by Singer, I love. The third one wasn't bad by any means. Um, just, I don't think it, it, there was something in it that kind of lacked from the first two films, from the genius of the first two films, that... Uh, a great deal of it was owed to Brian Singer, Singer and the vision that he brought forth. Uh, the X-Men are not an easy kind of team to bring on film. The Avengers, I mean, you have an all-star cast of like the Hulk, Captain America, Thor. You have a lot of iconic characters that kind of are were well-known beforehand. With the X-Men, it was kind of bringing everyone in together at once. So that was a very, very delicate thing to kind of handle particularly when they had a fan favorite such as Wolverine. They managed to pull it off. The, the third film, and, and, and I stress, not bad, but I just I feel that it is the weaker of the trilogy. It's, it's the, the weakest of the three films. This would lead off to a spinoff of, I mean, The Inevitable, which were films based on the most popular character in the franchise, Wolverine. So they did three films. They did X-Men Origin Wolverine, which honestly to me I found to be a disappointment. I There was a lot they tried to do with that film, and it didn't work. They introduced characters, some who were which were unnecessary. I'm not even going to touch on Will I Am's character. And other characters that I hold very near and dear, like a character called Gambit, who I thought was very poorly done and poorly introduced. So it didn't... I, I, I wasn't satisfied in the very least. I think I've seen X-Men Origins Wolverine maybe once at best. So they proceeded with a sequel that was much more kind of focused towards Wolverine's comic book run when he's in Japan. And that film was called The Wolverine. That one is a bit more truer to the character and to kind of his storyline that was done back in the late 80s. Uh, and you also get to meet a character that was one of his major antagonists called the Silver Samurai. Fun flick, not great, 
but they kind of hit it out of the park with the last film, which was Logan, which is kind of the swan song to the character as it would be the last time that Hugh Jackman would play Wolverine on film, at least to that capacity. So once these films were taken care of, it was kind of debated amongst Fox whether or not they were going to move forward making X-Men film based on characters that we knew. Storm, Colossus, uh, Beast introducing Gambit or reintroducing Gambit, Cyclops, and so on. Or if they were going to possibly go back in time and kind of give fans a viewing of how everything was just established, giving us an understanding of how everything was established, at least cinematically. That decision is what was, I guess, voted on because what we got, thank God, was X-Men First Class. Now, the cast alone was definitely star-studded. I mean, you had James McAvoy playing Professor Xavier, who I thought did a fantastic job. I mean, James McAvoy has been in a film called Wanted with Angelina Jolie. He did um, the N. Night Shyamalan film. Uh, the name escapes me. So there's Unbreakable, there's Glass, and then there's the one that, uh, that McAvoy's in. The name of it escapes me. Oh, what the hell is it called? Uh, Split. There it is. Split. I knew it kind of had to do something with glass, but not exactly. But th those trilogies of film also are very interesting. Unbreakable remains one of my favorite kind of pseudo-comic book films. If you have not seen Unbreakable with Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson, if you're a comic fan, I highly recommend it. It's probably one of M. Night's, Shyamalan's best films. So McAvoy had come pretty much from that. Then for Magneto, they cast an actor named Michael Fassbender, who I had never really known up until this point. Where Fass, where excuse me, where McAvoy could definitely convey that he was a young Professor Charles Xavier, that you, it was believable that he could be a young Patrick Stewart. Michael Fassbender definitely gave off the feel that he could be a young Sir Ian McKellen from Lord of the Rings. And, from, and as Magnino himself. Jennifer Lawrence played Mystique. She did a great job, um, at, at least as a younger version of Mystique. I prefer Rebecca Romaine Stamos, or Rebecca Romaine. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to work on that because I know she got divorced. But be that as it may, I thought Rebecca Romaine was a standout in the first X-Men film and in the second one. I honestly believe she stole the show. I was not very happy with how they did away with her character in the third film. But here, Jennifer Lawrence plays a, a younger version of Mystique. You have uh, Nicholas Holt, who played Beast. Kevin Bacon, who was the antagonist of, in the film. His name was Sebastian Stan. You had Zoe Kravitz, who made an appearance as a mutant. Uh, her name was Angel, which was kind of a take on the character Angel from the comic books. The, the male character with the wings, with the white angel wings, who becomes Archangel later on. And uh, they just kind of rounded out the characters with modern, some modern characters going backwards. And they took a little bit of liberties, but it worked. Another one of my favorite characters, characters in the film was Banshee. Banshee has a power that he could release an incredibly high frequency pitch from his mouth. So high and so powerful that it could actually levitate him. It could push him off the ground if need be. 
So regardless, you know, or better yet, needless to say that that sound can do incredible damage if you stand in front of it. And then there was another character who I enjoyed very much. His name was Havoc, who was nice to see on screen. Havoc's power, who's actually he's related to Cyclops. Cyclops, a character who throws the, the optic beam from his eyes. Havoc can generate that same power from his body and release it. But it's difficult for him to contain. So in all of these things, this film, X-Men First Class, would kind of give you that introduction to everyone and how those pieces come together to form what is in this film the first incarnation of the X-Men. Another thing it does is that it gives us two very important relationships. One of which is we see how Xavier meets Mystique. Now this was a very interesting plot twist for me because up until that point in the comics and in the animated series, you know, that I watched growing up, Mystique didn't join the X-Men until much, 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 much later. She was always true to Magneto. She was relatively like his right-hand woman. So she was very, you know, her, her devotion was to the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Now in the comics and in the storylines and X-Men is one title that, well, better said, it's one, you know, it's one comic book that runs across maybe 15 titles. So you have the Uncanny X-Men, the Astonishing X-Men, you know, just regular X-Men, X-Force, Excalibur. I mean, they they branched these out throughout the 80s and 90s that you got about a new issue every week. So they took a lot of different liberties. So it, I, I, I tip my hat to the filmmakers and how they try to kind of create something structured that wouldn't reflect 15 different titles. So for them to make Mystique and Charles kind of meet at childhood when they're relatively in their adolescence, I thought that was very, very unique. It also builds and it establishes a relationship with these characters that is kind of brother and sister. Now, knowing that Mystique would later join Magneto, it begs the question, what is it that happens that she leaves Charles's side? Because you could see that there is a, a, a great sense of genuine care for one another. So X-Men First Class picks up on that. It also shows what happens to Eric Lencher, to Magneto. So given that all he had suffered with the concentration camps and being torn from his parents and having to deal with Nazis, you see that as, that as, you know, a man in his early, you know, kind of, well, mid to late twenties, he has now pretty much just made it his life's mission to find any remaining Nazis or anyone who is connected to what had happened to him. So he could exact his revenge. And this kind of, is where Magneto is put into a, a shade of gray, where he's not necessarily a villain, but he's not necessarily a hero. And his character's evolution is definitely one of the most satisfying and one of the most brilliant in these film series. And in this first film, he is pretty much trying to find the man who exploited him or exploited his power back in the concentration camps, and that's Kevin Bacon's character, Sebastian Shaw. And in doing that, he runs into 
old German Nazi officers, you see how he dispatches them one by one in some pretty unique ways using his powers. And at that same time, simultaneously, Charles Xavier is helping the United States government in locating mutants. Now, this kind of brings their worlds, it brings Charles and Xavier's paths together. It makes them cross paths and it builds cinematically what is the beginning of their friendship. And it, it's done very, very well. Very, very well. One thing I love about this film is that because it takes place in the mid to say late 60s, it deals with the Cuban Missile Crisis. And one of the things I also love very much is the style of the movie. These guys look really great. The styles and the designs are really cool. And you see everything from how they kind of present the device Cerebro to Xavier. Now, because Xavier is a telepath and because he has the power to reach out and to speak to people, what Cerebro does is that it enhances that exponentially. So when he puts Cerebro on, he could pretty much find any mutant around the world, anywhere. He could communicate with them and he could kind of guide them to come to him if they feel alone, if they feel scared, if they need guidance. Like that's his way of filling up the school little by little with students to ultimately do the right thing. The bond and the friendship that is forged in this film between Xavier and Charles, albeit it is brief, it does go by within a two-hour period. Um, but one of the beauties of it is that later on in other films, we see this friendship kind of drawn out. One of my one of my concerns were one of one of my concerns watching this film was that I didn't want their friendship to just be an afterthought. Like, okay, they were friends, they were cool, and then all of a sudden. They had differences of ideologies and now they're enemies because that's not really how it is. So even though that was kind of felt in the first film, they broaden on that quite a bit. The introduction from everything to the way Magneto acquires his helmet, which is pretty neat, to you seeing Hank McCoy beast and how he helps Professor Xavier, everything from building the school to building his jet to helping him kind of fine-tune Cerebro. All of it is done with a degree of care that should be done when you're introducing these characters to to a new fan base. One of the things that I found also incredibly interesting was that you can see how Magneto, despite him believing in what Charles is doing, he still kind of has his own agenda. He still kind of has his own, how can I say, he still has his own things to resolve. And it you can see it here. You can see it in how he speaks to Mystique. You can see it in the scenes where they are kind of recruiting the other X-Men. It's kind of done like to a music montage. And it's very cool. You see how they locate 
Havoc. You see how they locate Banshee. I mean, there's even a special... There's a special cameo by a certain, <laughs> you know, six-clawed wolf, or better yet, I'll just say it, Wolverine, that's very brief but works very well. So they took great care in doing this the right way. What I did thoroughly enjoy as well is how they put, because this was taken in the 60s, how they kind of put the Cuban Missile Crisis into play, how they take a factual event and give it a dramatic twist to make it affect this film and also to forward Magneto's agenda. Pretty fantastic, to say the least. Incredibly entertaining. It pretty much sets up the... It sets up the arc as to where you see, ultimately, Magneto and Professor X go their separate ways. But before that happens, something that makes their relationship, or at least that it lets you invest in their relationship, is that Professor X... There's a defining moment in the film that that I to me it's really beautiful is when he helps him hone his power because Magneto given that you know he's still relatively young and he's not the 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 experience and the and the all-powerful Magneto that we know in the other X-Men films we had seen that where he's older Magneto the the containment is still very raw. He doesn't know how much he could pull or push or, you know, there's no nuance to what he does. And Charles Xavier helping him tells him, you have to find your power between rage and serenity. And that's really a beautiful thing, particularly with how they use Magneto and how they show him focusing on some on a serene moment on a moment where he is happy where he feels love where things are good because that rage is always in him after everything he he endured you know there's some very telling points in the film where you look at his forearm and you see you know his his numbers burned into his arm etched into his arm and they they really just use that in an incredible way, to such a degree that it moves Eric to tears when he realizes that he could use his power and and what he needs to unlock it. They also show Xavier helping Havoc. They show him helping Banshee. They they show him kind of helping Angel. So they, they show him as a young, enthusiastic professor. Like there's really, you know, you can't do anything wrong. We're just going to get it right. We're going to get everything right. The film progresses to the major action sequence where you see the battle take place on a beach during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Before this kind of happens, you see how Magneto is talking to Mystique and telling her, because she's constantly walking around in a human form. He's like, why don't you... Walk around as you really are. Don't ever be ashamed of who you are. And this is Magneto's influence. This is who he is. This is Magneto from the comics. 
he believes that homo sapiens are no longer at the top of the food chain that it is now homo superior that it is now mutants with power who should be making decisions who should be ruling who are at the top of the food chain and unfortunately it's this way of thinking that kind of undoes his sense of reasoning he becomes more aggressive and ultimately he becomes a villain now at the end of this film you get to see where Sebastian Shaw, the character played by Eric Bacon, and Magneto kind of come to a head. You see where their, where their interaction from the very beginning of the film is now, where I guess you could say Magneto comes to be. We get to see the breath of Magneto. In the midst of this, you have a Russian submarine or a Russian battleship and an American battleship on the precipice of war as based to what happened to the Cuban Missile Crisis. In this moment, Magneto takes a submarine out of the water. He pulls it out of the water using his power and showcasing just how powerful he is. He does this with Professor X. He does this as an X-Men, and it's an incredible moment in the film. However, conflict and war is what caused Magneto so much, to such a degree that it literally defines who he is. In that moment, Magneto embraces who he becomes. He kills his tormentor. He now realizes his pretty much the absolution of his power. Despite Xavier telling him and guiding him, don't do this. You're better than this. This is not what's meant to be. Mag Magneto can't let it go. He does what he needs to do. He embraces who he becomes. In a moment of conflict or disagreement with Charles, something happens and we all come to see how Professor X is paralyzed and would forever need to sit in a wheelchair. The film continues, it progresses, it shows us Xavier School for Gifted Youngsters. You see the regret in Magneto's face that the dream that him and Eric had of bringing forth mutants together would not come to pass because of their two different ideologies where Charles Xavier believes that humanity and mutants could literally make the world a better place. Magneto no longer sees that. He sees that it is now that it is now the age of homo superior. It is now the age of the mutant. Humans no longer matter. And that's literally one of the first lines he says from the first X-Men film. Needless to say, after seeing this movie and seeing the mutants who choose sides between Magneto and between Xavier, some of which are hard to watch, others were kind of predictable, we now 
walk out of the theater with an incredibly well-done film that kind of redefined the X-Men. So we had our first series. This is clearly now running out of the gate that we have a new series of X-Men coming along. The film pretty much wraps up with Magneto picking up Emma Frost. Emma Frost is a another kind of important villain to the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, particularly back in the comics. She, I believe her name is Ice Queen, if I'm not mistaken. She could turn her body into that of a diamond. She could completely shift her body into the structure of a diamond, which makes it incredibly, incredibly dense and hard. So in doing that, having the Ice Queen, Emma Frost, Mystique, Azazel, who is actually Nightcrawler's father, if you guys know Nightcrawler, the blue, the the character who looks like a blue devil and can transport Azazel, is his dad. So he's with the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, and the film ends with them breaking Ice Queen out of prison. Magneto standing there in all his glory, looking exactly like he walked out of a comic book in 1969, and it's a beautiful thing. It's an absolutely beautiful thing. Now. Matt Matthew Vaughn, the gentleman who did the, if I'm not mistaken, the Planet of the Apes films and is also doing the film The Batman, this was his di- directorial debut of an X-Men film. Now, he had done other movies before that, but this was his. Now, Brian Singer, who had done the first two X-Men films, was a producer here. So the good fortune of this film X-Men First Class being incredibly entertaining was that having Brian Singer as a producer meant that we would now get a sequel for this film that turns out to be my favorite X-Men film of all time, which is X-Men Days of Future Past. So the difference with the sequel was and they they took a very very bold decision is that they merged the cast from the original films and they bought the characters from the X-Men the first class films needless to say this recipe may as well should have been souffle because it was delicious and it was perfect in so many ways say what you will about brian singer the man knows his subject matter he knew it with the first two x-men films he understood it as a producer for x-men first class but this film now being his responsibility and him carrying it from the previous film, you see the X-Men shine here in every possible way. You see things here that people have waited to see for such a very long time. The X-Men always had these creatures, these huge robots called the Sentinels who were like their adversaries. There were these robots that, if I'm not mistaken, 
the United States government and a, a gentleman by the name of Bolivar Trask created these humongous robots to hunt and kill mutants. That's all these robots did. And they were pretty much the the enemies of the X-Men. Now, through the first series of films, the technology wasn't out to make these robots. These robots were huge. They were like anywhere from 30 to 50 to 70 feet tall. So in 2000, the technology wasn't out that it wasn't out for that yet. But in 2014, when Days of Future Past was released, technology had now jumped leaps and bounds. So we actually got to see them. We actually got to see these sentinel creatures and to see the havoc they could cause. The film opens up in kind of a dystopian world in the future. You know, it's things are bleak. Mutants are held as prisoner in Central Park. Very reminiscent to to what the Nazis did. So, again, it's keeping a lot of the similar tones and the similar beats. And it does it in, a, in an incredibly satisfying way. What I did love is that it shows where our heroes are now during this time frame. Where are the remaining X-Men who are alive because they're being haunted by these creatures, by these sentinels. So it brings us to characters that some of us know, some of us don't. One character who I love that's in this film, even though... He's in it very briefly. He's one of my favorite characters called Bishop. We get to see Colossus again. We get to see Sunfire. We get to see uh, Elliot Page play a character called Kitty Pride, if I'm not mistaken, which he played in, I'm sorry, which he played in um, X-Men The Last Stand. That's where that character of Kitty Pride was introduced. So now Kitty Pride has a more substantial part here. She has to kind of bridge the future and the past together, given her power. As the film starts and it shows us pretty much what they're trying to survive and what they're trying to outrun, we get to finally see Iceman. We get to see... Professor X, we get to see Storm, and of course we get to see Wolverine, who is going to be central to the events of this film. The first 10 minutes alone, the action sequence of this film, the first 10 minutes alone, are breathtaking. Absolutely breathtaking. And they still hold beautifully seven years later. What I did not expect is for the film to mesh both characters and give everybody ample screen time. Let everybody kind of shine the right way. But keeping Wolverine as the centerpiece. Now there is a comic book. There was a comic book back in the late 80s called Days of Future Past. And this is somewhat loosely based on that book. But the, the cinematically, the way that it was done was sheer brilliance on the part of Brian Singer. You see them explaining to Wolverine 
who can who's the only person who can go back in time because of his healing factor if an if an attempt were to, if an attempt were made by kitty pride play, play, played by elliot page if an if she were to do that to somebody and take them through time that far back according to the film their memory would begin to snap like a rubber band and they would start literally losing their mind so the only person who can do it because of his healing factor is wolverine which is why they send him back to 1973 and the beauty of it is that the remaining x-men that are together also includes magneto because now he pretty much has to fight alongside of Charles because everyone is being hunted. This is not a question of X-Men and Brotherhoods of Evil Mutants. This is now a fact that they're all being hunted. So you, one of my favorite parts is when Magneto tells Wolverine, you need to find me as well, and you'll need to do it at a time where I cannot be further apart from Charles. So that's already a fantastic plot line to consider moving forward. They push Wolverine into 73. The way he kind of shows up is hysterical. He's kind of protecting uh, a daughter of a mobster. And, you know, it's, it's little things like that that go to show you the kind of decisions Wolverine has to make in order to, you know, to survive when he wakes up in his body he's kind of like oh jesus what did i do it progresses to a point where he now has to look for charles xavier when he gets to the school he sees the school grounds not as he remembered them they're not well kept they're not taken care of they appear to be abandoned there's a lot of questions that he asks and it turns out that charles xavier is not as optimistic as he was about the school and about helping mutants and about his ideals because of him losing mystique to magneto and also for magneto abandoning their ideal what they had hoped to do together it's up to wolverine to pretty much get charles to get back into his seat literally and to lead beast has a prominent role dr hank mccoy in helping kind of get them where they need to be now magneto where they find him is incredibly interesting and again this is the brilliance of brian singer so magneto's being held by the pentagon for assassinating john f kennedy they put the Kennedy assassination on him. So they put him in a plastic prison, I believe, in the White House, or underneath the White House, if I'm not mistaken. Now, what ensues after that is one of the most incredible things I've ever seen on film to this day. In breaking... I'm sorry, he's Mag Magneto is not a prisoner underneath the White House. He's a prisoner underneath, I believe, the Pentagon. The way they break him out is genius because they go and they find 
one of the only mutants who will be able to help get him out in the blink of an eye, literally. And that character's name is Quicksilver. Now, here's a little bit of a fun fact, which they kind of touched on in this film, and they kind of didn't. In the comic books, Quicksilver's name is Peter Maximoff. He is the son of Magneto. A lot of diehard X-Men fans know this, not many do. Now, if you want something even trippier than that, if you guys have seen the Avengers films and you know Wanda, who is also known as Scarlet Witch, she is the daughter of Magneto. So Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver are the children of Magneto, but because the movie rights were split differently, they couldn't kind of play around with this. The only one they could do it with was with Quicksilver. And again, kind of touch on it lightly. Getting back to one of the most incredible scenes I've ever seen. Inside of the Pentagon, as they're breaking him out, they're coming out through a service entrance that leads into a kitchen. Now, this is this is a part of the film that's that's worth the price of admission alone. As they're trying to escape they are pretty much cut off by police guards who are going to stop them because Magneto's a prisoner. These prison guards, or these police guards, draw their weapons and they discharge. In that instance, Quicksilver takes off running throughout the kitchen to divert the shots and to to kind of What's the word I'm looking for? Incapacitate the police officers who are trying to get him. Again, one of the most incredible things you'll ever see. Ever. It lasts about maybe three minutes, if that. One of the most incredible things I've ever seen. Still holds up till this day. The film progresses. You see Xavier kind of hold Charles accountable for all the damage he's done for bringing negative light to mutants. He also calls him out on assassinating Kennedy. He's like, why would you kill that man when he was our last hope? To which Magneto replies, I didn't kill him. I was trying to save him. Xavier kind of laughs it off. He's like, yeah, why would you want to save him? And, and Magneto replies, Because Kennedy was one of us. So they were alluding cinematically in a comic book film that President Kennedy had some type of a mutant power and he was murdered for it. Again, these are little things that they think about, that they give time to, that they explore, and it makes the story richer. Yeah, it could be a little obscene. Of course, Kennedy didn't have any type of mutation or power. But if they're going to use a patsy, why not make it Magneto? And Magneto explains to Xavier, I try to move the bullet. He's like, but when I did, they found me and I lost trajectory and it killed him. Because if if you remember, it was three shots all in all that killed Kennedy. So these little things, again, a little storyline, a subplot that lasts two pieces of dialogue gives you something to think about that's really cool.
So now the film is progressing and the government is working hard on building these sentinel robots that we discussed to pretty much control or destroy mutants. Magneto doesn't take too well to that. And he literally rips the the White House, uh, a Nixon administration White House, and he brings it into a baseball field so he can kill the president. The movie's angles and the rhythms, the, the political touches on it, it's just, again, it's what makes this film the most brilliant out of the four. The film progresses. Wolverine's actions kind of bring back normalcy to the timeline where in the film he ventured into the past in a post-apocalyptic future because of what he does, he wakes up in Xavier's School of the Gifted. So you see that he corrected the timeline. Everything is fine. We move on to the next film in the series called X-Men Apocalypse. Now, Apocalypse is considered, at least in the world of the X-Men and in, in, in the Marvel world of the comic books, Apocalypse was considered to be the first mutant ever. So he's kind of like Adam. As Adam was considered the first man, Apocalypse is to be considered the first mutant ever recorded in history. So he came from the time of the Egyptians, if not further back. He's, his age is unknown. And his powers have pretty much been cycled out and passed on to mutants who can pretty much contain who he is. This is a cinematic telling of it. This is how they kind of chose to address Apocalypse. Now, this film brings back all of the major cast. It introduces new characters such as Jean Grey. We get to see her a younger version of herself other than the first uh, series of films that we had seen. And we get to see a young Cyclops. We get to see a villain by the name of Cycloc. We get to see Archangel. So they bring forth a lot of characters. Magneto comes back. Michael Fassbender plays Eric Lenscher. You see that he had tried to kind of avoid after the events of, of Days of Future Past, he tries to live a normal life or whatever semblance of a normal life he can have as a mutant. Being Magneto, that doesn't come to pass. And it seems as though that Magneto is constantly just... I don't want to say he just, you know, it's like the guy can't catch a break. You know what I mean? He he tries. He steps away. He tries to do something different. He takes into consideration the things that Charles tells him and to possibly consider and to give humanity a chance. But it seems as though humanity tends to fail him. And because of his power, because of his incredible power, Magneto 
is always sought out by the darkest of adversaries. And when he kind of sees what happens, he gives into that. Becoming one of Apocalypse's minions. Now, this film, I will say, was better than X3. As a sequel to Days of Future Past, I did have a degree of disappointment because it didn't kind of, I don't want to say that it didn't play the same, but it didn't, hmm, how can I put this? And maybe you guys might agree with me. It came out two years later. It just, Apocalypse was my first problem. Apocalypse was played by Oscar Isaac. And I think Oscar Isaac is an incredible actor. I'm a big fan of, of, of his work. Uh, I enjoyed, I thought actually he was some of the better parts of Star Wars. But he had also done some independent films as well. But as Apocalypse, I just, I didn't buy it. Also in the comic books, Apocalypse is this enormous entity. He's, not, well, yeah, he's, he's just, he's big. Like you would think like, kind of like, you know, the Hulk big. And here he just, he looks like an average sized man. It didn't really work that well in my opinion. Because he just kind of looked... I don't know, he kind of, I hate to say it this way, but he <laughs> he kind of looked like a Power Ranger villain. You know what I mean? And that was very, very, very distracting. But in terms of tone and what he tried to convey as Apocalypse, he did okay. I, I just think aesthetically, it didn't work. Now, this film was directed by Brian Singer. So... I guess this was Brian Singer's opportunity to do kind of his third quote-unquote X-Men film. And again, see it for yourselves. Definitely, I enjoyed it better, a lot better than X3. It just certain things that, certain choices that I thought were curious, to say the least. And I thought they could focus on certain other things in the film that were of more that were a, a bit more significant. I think they could have fleshed out Apocalypse a little more. You know, you kind of see here where Mystique takes a leadership position in the team. Um, you know, it, it, there's growth here. Sophie Turner of Game of Thrones, who I absolutely love, is in this film as Jean Grey. So they kind of start touching on the next film with her introduction as Jean Grey, which would be the fourth and final film in this series, X-Men Dark Phoenix. This movie is a little tricky, and a lot of people tend to regard this film as the weakest and the worst X-Men of the prequel trilogy. I respectfully disagree. I think the film kind of got a bad rap. It definitely has aspects where it feels rushed. And the reason why is because during the filming of Dark Phoenix, it was being negotiated that Marvel was 
Marvel and Disney were trying to acquire 20th Century Fox. And once they did that, they would acquire the rights now to X-Men. So with this film, it was pretty much an idea that we're going to get this film done. We're going to kind of get this out of the way and finish this story so we could now focus on the new series of films. X-Men Dark Phoenix takes a look at the evolution of Jean Grey's power, which she cannot control. So this was already done in X-Men 3 The Last Stand. Some people may think this controversial. I actually preferred this version more than X-Men 3 The Last Stand. It just kind of worked differently. I think uh, people had a lot of expectation for this film. It played as true as possible to the storyline of the comic books. And it also tried to be as individual as it could from X-Men 3 without being an exact duplicate of that film, which is incredibly difficult to do. But I think the, the weakest aspect, the whole setup of Jean Grey becoming Dark Phoenix, that I enjoyed. I think that the weakest thing in this film were this kind of there, there's like these villains there's there the side villains in the film that is like an alien race that are coming for Jean Grey's power so by doing that they're trying to like brainwash her and they're trying to get a hold of her so they could t- rob her power from her these side villains they were a little bit distracting, but not to a degree that it was. It made the film terrible. Now, for hardcore X Men fans, back in the late '80s, there were these villain of there were these race of aliens called the Brood, who literally kind of looked like the creatures from the film Aliens. They had these long, drawn out like mouths and and with sharp teeth. Those things looked fantastic. I would have hoped that they would have gone that route instead if you know to use as a supplemental villain if in this film Jean Grey was going to be technically the bad guy because she's Dark Phoenix. But even then it wasn't something that was that distracting. I honestly thought that X-Men Dark Phoenix worked better than X-Men Apocalypse. I thought it was more entertaining And I thought that this was as best as possible the way they could kind of wrap up this series of films. So if you were to look at them collectively, X-Men First Class, X-Men Days of Future Past, X-Men Apocalypse, and X-Men Dark Phoenix, they do work well together. They really do. Give them a chance and see what I mean. Days of Future Past to me is a standout, followed by First Class, followed by Dark Phoenix, and lastly, followed by Apocalypse. But it's in Apocalypse where we see the manifestation of Gene's power. So you'll kind of, you definitely see them in order just to kind of get the better of it. And it stuck true, man. It's, it's all I can say. It, it, you know, it was as authentic and looking at X-Men Dark Phoenix and looking at X3, there are definite similarities. There are definitely, you know, battle scenes that resemble one another that were necessary based on the book. 
and it was done it was done again as well as possible without being an exact ripoff that would have pissed me off if it would have been an exact ripoff and that would have been a waste of time but it wasn't one of my favorite things is the ending of the film and i guess you could say spoiler alert i'm not giving much away but yeah if you don't want to risk it then stop listening now but if it's of no consequence i'm not again you you'll really see i'm not giving much away the very first X-Men film ended with Magneto in a plastic prison that was created by Charles Xavier to contain him. And they're playing chess with plastic pieces and a glass board. Again, you cannot have so much as a paperclip in a room with Magneto because that's all, that's all he'll need to get out. They kept that little gesture of the two friends always playing chess and it spoke a lot it starts at the end of that first x-men film it continues into days of future past and then it i'm sorry again it starts from the end of the first x-men film it continues in x-men first class it continues in Days of Future Past. And then it's the last thing we see these two iconic characters do. And one of the reasons why I like that so very much is because it literally is a representation of both Xavier and Magneto. They, they look before a chessboard. They lead pieces, one for the betterment of mankind, the other for the absolute and inevitable evolution of mutants. And they just play chess. It's something they do as friends. It's something that defines their characters. It's, you know, throughout these films, they've had to think and oppose each other tactically. It really is a beautiful gesture. And the film ends with we, with two friends who have been at odds with each other who come back to one another and who ultimately end up respecting one another doing what they do to bring comfort to one another the film ends and it left me very satisfied for this set of X-Men films so now we have the original series we have the prequel series, and now we're going to see what Disney brings. We're going to see what the MCU and Disney sit down and decide to do with this franchise that, in my opinion, overall has been an absolute fantastic success with the spinoff of Logan. With this, Let's not forget Deadpool. Deadpool is also associated with... In technically the world of X-Men, he was introduced through X-Force, which was a take on the X-Men. Deadpool has already been confirmed to come into the MCU. So he's joining all of the characters that we know. The Tom Holland Spider-Man, Black Panther, all of these characters that we know. Deadpool's coming, so God help us. And, and this is with Disney, a character like Deadpool. So yeah, let's see how they pull that one off. But this is, the X-Men and the Fantastic Four are going to be huge for Disney to do. 
more importantly to me, the X-Men. I've always felt that the Fantastic Four are family friendly, you know, that it's the Incredibles. That's who the Fantastic Four is. I mean, they should go through some kind of hardship at some point or face some kind of serious threat. But it's a family. X-Men, these are people who generally are not wanted, who are feared, who are, I mean, they were created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby because of racism, because as years would progress, because of the fear of homophobia and anti-Semitism and, and prejudices and racism. This, this, is, this is literally the foundation of the X-Men. So if you're black or you're Latino or you're gay or you're, you're different, the X-Men spoke to you. That was your team. Because you were not you were not the norm. You were not you know, you weren't embraced. And it all goes back to what I said in the previous episode why Xavier said, "You don't have power, you have a gift. Use it accordingly." Power subjugates, a gift is shared. And that's the beauty and the brilliance of it. So needless to say, I am beyond excited to see what the Marvel Cinematic Universe does. I hope they do it well. You guys are definitely going to know because I'm going to tell you <laughs> when, when that day comes. But as for now, these are the series of X-Men films that we have. If you guys have not seen them, definitely check them out. I would even say if you want to do the newer, the newer films, which are the prequel films first, you can do that and then go back to the old ones. Or you could do them in chronological order. I'm not a stickler like that. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna give you a demerit or take points away from it. But you're really gonna be looking at some exceptional filmmaking based on superheroes, particularly superheroes that I love. So let me know what you think. You guys, give them a viewing, and I hope you enjoy them. I do want to apologize that this episode was uh, delayed upon release. As you know, I try to do it every Sunday. Uh, had some technical difficulty, but got it sorted out. So this week's episode will be a little bit late, but hopefully we'll we'll get back into our rhythm of every Sunday. As always, I cannot thank you guys enough for lending me your ear. Talking about what I love, superheroes and movies. I hope this information is helpful. I hope you guys check the movies out. I hope you enjoy them as much as I did you have a different take or you have an opinion as always you know where to find me so have you seen one at gmail.com or my instagram handle so have you seen i always love receiving questions and comments and feedback so please don't be shy drop me a line in the meantime as always take care of yourselves take care of each other's wash your hands wear your mask like all good superheroes do and I will see you next week for a new episode of So Have You Seen. Don't really have a subject or topic yet. So if you guys have anything in mind you want me to discuss, let me know. I'll be happy to do it on your behalf. Love you guys for listening. Thank you for your time. Until next week, I am Noel Cruz. Take care. Bye-bye.